0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Alize Today, I'm joined by Sertac Sehlikoğlu, a Senior Research Associate and Primary Investigator at the Institute of Global Prosperity, University College of London. We'll be talking about her book, Working Out Desire, Women, Sport and Self-Making in Istanbul, published this year by Syracuse University Press. Thank you very much, Dr. Sehlkoğlu, for joining us today. Thank you for your invitation, Elisa. Of course, it's a pleasure. Um, so to start off, could you take us through the beginnings of your work as an anthropologist? How did you come to anthropology and how did you conceive of this book?
2: Um, so I think it depends where we start. I'm thinking about your initial question at the beginnings of my interest in anthropology, right? if we start this with my college years, um, I have actually started with sociology. And uh, I need to say there's a single university exam in Turkey that one and a half million students take. And, um, And actually I've been interested in mathematics in my early teenage years and about mid teenage years. I started getting more interested in social sciences and humanities. So by the time I was entering the exam, I wasn't exactly clear which area I should I should choose within this, this kind of social sciences and humanities. What I did was I, I took the exam and depending on my score, I chose, well, your initial discipline, political sciences and sociology and psychology, and I think one or two philosophy uh, departments as well. And then I found myself in Bozici Sociology, right, Bozici University Sociology Department, and I think things started changing over there because I had taken uh, I had taken several anthropology courses back then. The head of the department I think was Nuket Sirman, who is an anthropologist, and she is a great anthropologist. She teaches really really well. Um and I found by Bartu Jandan was joining uh, that department recently. I was taking courses from her, but the person who really immediately impacted my my full interest in, in anthropology was Nazan Chunda. Uh, she's kind of my hero. The way she thinks was, was making immediate sense to me, which is which is not always the case for the rest of the, the class, maybe, but it was definitely the case. Uh, for me. And so I, I ended up in, in anthropology in the long run. How I ended up in, in this particular topic had more to do with um, with other elements, obviously, more with my concerns with the anthropology as a knowledge-making mechanism and how in anthropological knowledge about particular type of people, we have a tendency to focus particular tropes, right? So when um, I was thinking when, if if an individual or an anthropologist attempts to, to collect knowledge mm-hmm. about gender in the Middle East in the broader sense, but and, and especially gendered bodies of women in the Middle East, right? they would end up um, establishing a, a, a kind of set of knowledge because of these existing limited tropes that would really narrow down the subjectivities of the Mm -hmm. women in the region, right? That um, uh, the lives of women in the Middle East, and especially the Muslim women in the Middle East, were formed through uh, struggle and oppression. And we know this problem is something that was addressed so many times by so many scholars. Mm -hmm. But we don't have enough um, ethnographic material that focuses on other narratives, so I wanted to focus on other narratives, and I was thinking of leisure quite quite closely. And amongst all these options that I could have focused on to to maybe increase the number of colors in our palette of knowledge, mm-hmm. um, that would be options for arts, for music, for sports, and and sports was the easiest choice for me <laughs> because I grew up in a in a very sporty family my father was a national athlete all his friends were other athletes and and football players uh you call it soccer over there um <laughs>
1: i don't
2: <and laughs> so um so sports was an easy choice for me um and that's that's where i decided to locate myself
1: yeah that's wonderful to know because you're you know you the way you present the book um, actually uh, connects to my next question. So you explicitly let your readers know that Working Out Desire is not just a book about women exercising across Istanbul, but an ethnographic account of how desiring subjectivities are made. So can you speak to your concept of desiring subjects, which is at the heart of the book, and What is at stake in this orientation from exercise to desire? Um, Yes,
2: perhaps I should um, connect my answer to this question, to the former question and build Mm -hmm. from there. You're right. So when I was initially going to the field, actually I wasn't thinking that this will be where I will end up. When I was going to the field, my entire proposal actually was about a i would be focusing on women on the gyms right and i was thinking if you go to women on the gyms you would end up with finding a large number of you know religious pious etc. women so by the time i was going to the field it was 2010 2011 and obviously sabah mahmoud's uh, book was was very very popular uh, so I was thinking that the kind of my focus will be somehow the internet intersections of um, body making and and sports and leisure and piety, right? Kind of, um, but that didn't happen. That wasn't what I found in the field. First of all, there weren't so many uh, pious women actually at the gyms. There weren't so many headscarf-wearing women either, so I was thinking maybe eighty, ninety percent of the women would be wearing headscarves outside of the gym. That wasn't the case. The number, the the kind of percentage, was exact same with the percentage we know. Uh, in Turkey, right in Turkey, um, in 2011, about half of the women were wearing headscarves. So were the women at the gyms. <laughs> so it wasn't really necessarily determined by any religiosity, any, any modesty, mm-hmm. right? Um, but there was something else going on. So, um, uh, so there's there's also one more issue that was taking place, except with a small number of. Uh, middle class ones. The gyms in Istanbul also are not necessarily a space where women are exhaustively working out to, to build fit, skinny bodies either. So my pro, my my initial idea about working on body making and piety didn't seem to work. Okay, um, but there was something more interesting I I ended up noticing. So at the beginning of my I want to share this this kind of anecdote actually at the beginning of my uh field work i was taking notes so everybody knew i was a researcher there i was taking notes very kind of clearly on my notebook and people are asking both in the gym itself in the in the kind of where women work out but also in the changing room and changing rooms had these really good interactions really good conversation that, w- that was perfect material for an ethnographer so one of the things i noticed was in the in the changing rooms women were constantly asking repetitively asking these two questions to each other Uh, so in turkey when, when when any individual wants to start a conversation especially in istanbul they usually start with something like where are you from are you married things like that but in that space in that particular space the two repeating questions were for how long have you been coming here number one number two how many kilos have you lost in terms of weight right And then, again, I was still like trying to see about body making and becoming fit, et cetera. So I was interpreting this quite naively. Um, And thank God we have ethnographic fieldwork, long term. It gives us perspective in time. If I was doing fieldwork just for a few weeks, that would be my conclusion. Because my initial uh, interpretation of these conversation was, oh, women are coming here to lose weight and uh, and they are trying to kind of see how many key keep like how much weight they will be able to lose in time. But then the time was passing. These women were not really losing much weight, but the questions weren't changing, right and And the dominant, a very masculinist perspective about the women who are working at out at the gyms was how they are not serious, right? They are not serious about working out. They're not serious about losing weight. Actually, they're such a joke. They're such a joke that they first work out and then they eat cookies and pastries afterwards with tea and gather together, which is all true. But then I I, I ended up realizing something else that was at operation, right? So first of all, the questions were not to... to set up a target for themselves. The women were not asking these questions to set up a target in the way we imagine they would be. Instead, what they were doing is they were seeing all these messages. You know, they were being bombarded with all these messages coming from media that, you know, skinny bodies should be accomplished and they would be accomplished by exercising, by this and that. And they wanted to go to these spaces to test if this information is true and partly to feel good about themselves. So there was there was an, a more agentive process in the way they filter and 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 mold the the data they were receiving. So there was this number one. Number two is immediately related to your question on designing subject, right? Um so so we need to understand one thing. Desire from the anthropo- from an anthropological point of view is not a kind of abstract term that's free-floating, that's disconnected from the everyday life. It's actually very socially, historically, economically formed, right? Um, and we know this, Lisa Ropal studies this very well. Right? Um, so then how does sport how was sport specifically formed in the context of Turkey? So sport is actually when we look at the, the quick history of, of Turkish Republic we would immediately realize that sports was used by the Turkish state as a tool for transformation right for self-improvement. So sports was like there had been decades of investment for physical exercise, the like, compulsory physical exercise classes in high school, in middle school, etc. There are these kind of uh, annual parades, nineteenth of May youth festivals, where these kind of bodies are are paraded, um, and and there are kind of multiple investments about this, and this these entire investments was 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 using sports and exercise as a tool to create a new, healthy Western and civilized bodies, right? And, and that message was so clear across the media, across everywhere, in the, across the state. So in the minds of Turkish public then and Turkish imaginaries, sports was one of the areas any individual can turn to for self-improvement. So in my case, in the, in the case of Istanbulite women, they were doing exactly this. Almost all of the women I talked to were going to the gyms because they wanted to connect to their desires. We need to understand most of the time we don't know what we want about ourselves, for ourselves, for our future. We need some sort of a space, some sort of an area To work this out right to kind of to connect with our desiring selves and we're also thinking and talking about a context where male desire is is appropriate is encouraged is accepted but female desire is always controlled disciplined tuned down oppressed and that's kind of i'm using i'm not using this word lightly either right um so, so it's women were using this, this area for, their, um, for contributing their desiring self-making. So in a nutshell, just to wrap up the answer to your question, desiring self-making is enabling me to do two things. First, it helps me to theorize desire as an anthropological topic derived from post-structuralist feminist theory I give all the references to, to Louis McNay, um Sherry Ortner, um, uh, Lisa Roffel, etc. And from theories of subjectivity as a multi-layered, multifaceted, fluid, dynamic process, bring in Henrietta Moore, Catherine Ewing. Uh, and two, it also helps me to break the kind of these limited tropes I mentioned, by bringing a new color, not to say you know pie self making is wrong, not to say the kind of other other ethical self making analysis is 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 problematic in and of itself, but they are limiting and limited. So how do we break this by bringing in other forms of self making other other processes, uh, hoping that it will just enrich the conversation and bring like open up a path for further inquiries on other types of self-making processes that will enable us to understand these particular um, individuals in the
1: Middle East in a, in a multi-layered way.
2: Absolutely. It was a long answer. I know. Sorry. No,
1: it was a great answer. And I think you do a marvelous job at that. Um, and while you work towards these ends throughout the book, you ground your analysis in quite a bit of translation. For example, you introduce us to spor merak, interest or curiosity in sport, and Sport Jutezadar, which means sporty aunties, but it also has many layered meanings. Um, so for our listeners who might not be familiar with Turkey, can you give us a bit of background about these terms and how you came to them? through your fieldwork, what do these emic terms capture that might not be possible through, you know, their literal translations in English?
2: Thank you. Um, so basically I use, so maybe I should just give this introduction first, I use menak, interest or curiosity in sport, that's the direct translation, as an object of desire, because I mean, desire is a very difficult, intangible thing to study. Right. Mm-hmm. so how are you going to capture it ethnographically that's a huge question
1: mm-hmm. so <laughs> that's the question on. i'll ask
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll focusing on an object of desire was helping mm-hmm. me to to kind of accumulate this information right um and and we will elaborate uh, to my understanding later on. So so spor merakı is an interesting term. So it's kind of it's enabling me to do multiple things. First of all, it's enabling me to explain how what we are looking at in Istanbul and in po- other parts of the Middle East as well. Actually, a kind of we know that's that's uh, also happening in other parts of the Middle East and and Eastern Mediterranean. It's not um, like like women's interest in exercise is not like um, an exercise fad or trend, right? Um, not in the way we imagine it in the quote unquote Western world, because if we start imagining what's going on over there through through what's happening next to us. We would fail to to notice the differences and and from the perspective of use of desire that that would that would be very problematic um, so a sport miracle is enabling me to tap into women's own imaginations, and these imaginations are important so most, almost all of the women I have interviewed with. We're trying to tune down their interest in exercise. They were simultaneously seeing them as sporty person or sports persons. Sport is the word they use, right? Um, but the, it's a way of kind of um, in, like it's a way of, they they interpret this as a as a mere interest, right? They are not. They are trying to undersell almost their interest as well. So It's a way of. Um, Describing your interest not as something selfish, which is, um, if you kind of were always told, and you are living in an environment where this des- women's desire is is kind of immediately attached to uh, some problematic tropes, then you would you would want to package it slightly differently. Uh, And they are not necessarily doing this as a strategy. They are doing this because they also don't want to feel badly about themselves, right? There is a kind of particular connection to desire and self we need to understand that I try to explore in the book. So um, the kind of, the Spore Merak is then enabling me to tap into the individual's own imaginaries. Why is it just Merak? Why is it just curiosity? Why is it not a lifetime investment? Most of the women, again, were telling me how starting to exercise have changed their lives, right? Some of them were exaggerating, but most of them were not because I have stayed in contact with them. A number of them are still exercising, and they're also saying how it's changing their life because it's kind of creating a hook for them to, to their sense of self. Um. Same for sports uh, there. So, sporty aunties were kind of a city legend, or they still are in Istanbul. And mm-hmm. uh, that began with uh, in two thousand and eight. Uh, public parks were not necessarily like being used that well by the by the by the youth. Um, the playgrounds weren't kind of taken advantage of that well. So the, the the municipal government decided to do something that will attract more attention. And that the solution to that was um installing these outdoor gyms, right? Where where the youth can work out. But these spaces were swiftly taken over by women. Actually, we call them aunties, but most of them are just over 40, right? The kind of what makes them auntie is their kind of very familial look because of their maybe long robes, their kind of very humble look, they are overweight, they have this this motherly vibe. Um, They are not really necessarily um, like the fit bodies Republican Turkey was trying to promote either. They kind of, so all of a sudden, the kind of the friendliness, familiarity and unthreatening nat- nature of the word teze onti, was contrasting with them being sporty or spor- sports person, And this kind of combination of these two terms in the Turkish mind uh, was both an oxymoron and a, and a kind of attractive, interesting uh, topic, right? And uh, the title almost phrase, I don't know um so so, but that that kind of this strangeness of the combination of these two words in the minds of the public was also telling us what women were up to, right they kind of there is something they kind of they occupy occupy these spaces they in the morning times, especially most of these parks, especially in the kind of very conservative neighborhoods, women take over these parks so well. Men um, need a female chaperon to enter these spaces to show off that that they are not predators, almost, or there would be some 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 um, creepy predators too. Who knows? So it's kind of so. What I'm trying to do is sometimes bringing in um, these local terminologies are all like I'm not doing this. By the way, I'm very kind of conscious and even critical of the work that are constantly using local terms to some sort of a kind of, um, I think, ethnographic, uh, to, to, to present an ethnographic fluency in the mm-hmm. field, right? It's kind of, we're all part of this 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 critique that's been discussed so many times, you know, why do you need to translate what's the ladder mm-hmm. in, in local language, we don't need that. But if they are significant, and they are untranslatable. Then, then the duty of the anthropologist, I think, is to explain these multiple layers mm-hmm. as a way to describe the difference right, between, you know, the context where the reader would be reading this from, and this context you are writing about, and then use this local term. I did the same with the term mahram, right? Mahram, the culture, culture of mahramiyet. And I I have several colleagues who are now trying to do this with samimiyet, another term, also means both both are easily translated as um, um, uh, uh, intimacy, Mm -hmm. but it would be quite wrong to immediately assume these are just intimacy these are different layers uh, that that marks the turkish socialities mm-hmm. and then these differences would only be explained if we first describe the the specificities and then stick to the local term
0: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Thank you very much for, you know, texturing how you approach desire throughout the book. And, you know, you mentioned parks a little bit, and I want to ask you about um, your chapters on public parks. So, in those chapters, um, Muslim women become enmeshed in multiple negotiations around. Mahremiyet, as you mentioned, bodily movements, or even the gendered makeup of public spaces. And I'm wondering if you consider mobility to be an object of desire. And how do we see agency in action as Istanbulite Muslim women become desiring and mobile subjects? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question,
2: actually. I'm glad you asked this. Uh, so this at the center of this this analysis. Of course, if you started uh, your your field research in a women-only gym, one of the questions you have to ask the interlocutors is why they choose a women-only gym over a mixed gym, right? And then the kind of repeating answers would give you a pattern, and then you have a chance to explore this further, both in the women-only gym, but also in the public parks, right? So, one of the things that is quite central in my overall scholarship, I suppose, is is to try to understand what is right in front of our eyes, but normalized so much that we fail to turn this into an object of analysis. So, when it comes to women's public bodies in Turkey, we do we did focus quite a bit about their hijab and scarf. That's too much to the extent of losing our sight on how do any women need to operate with their sexual and sexualized bodies in public, right? What is the social control? How do they internalize this? How do they detect the social control, right? How do they avoid all sorts of harassments, harassment not in terms of of trying to take sexual advances, but but also in terms of, uh, you know, strong male gaze and the kind of harassment through gazing practices. So then it kind of gave me multiple uh, layers of analysis. First of all, there is this culture of mahrimiyet, right? Which I I explain as a kind of through. I use Laura Berland quite heavily in this. She talks about institutions of intimacy, where she says, well, actually, Intimacy is something that's very normative in a very private sphere, maybe in a very intimate sphere, right? The kind of particular type of uh, like uh, sexual relationship between two opposite sexes. That's how we call heteronormativity. But then it's learned through public. So it's not just about this intimate moment, but it's something, you know, we learn it in the public sphere. We navigate it. We kind of internalize this. So, okay, so that's very helpful. So then how does it operate in public and how does it how does it take specific forms in the context of Turkey? So then, first of all, one of the things, again, I needed to explain was that's an Islamic culture. Islamic is a term that enables me to be able to go beyond the Islamic versus secular dichotomy, because even if you are not Muslim, you still operate in that same environment. And you what you do is basically based on the neighborhood, you try to, as a woman, you try to control your sexual bodies, right? You kind of decide if you need to wear the top you are uh, wearing on, on your jeans is long enough to cover your back. Or not, you know whether you raise your arms, what part of your body will be revealed, whether you should be controlling this, whether you should be kind of pulling your skirt down when you are sitting down—all these controls—and right? that is shaped because you are trying to avoid not only harassment but also the penetrating male gaze, which operates in a very similar manner. That kind of this this female male active passive penetrating, penetrated, heteronormative dynamic was established. So the male gaze will try to penetrate through your body by strong gaze, right? And also we need to also understand how gaze in Turkish imaginary is has a power of, it's not something just intangible, it's just looking at, right? It has a power to touch, that's how it brings misfortune. Remember Nazar Deymesi touches, right? So then it can also penetrate and then the, the female body is in this heteronormative dynamic, its part is to try to cover it, right? So that it will it will avoid this this um, unsolicited uh, gaze touch, right. Okay, so that's the dynamic. And women learn this and how you know how to operate with their sexual bodies they learned us in these intersubjective environments as i said like the way we we dressed would depend on the neighborhood we are going to right? ah but then there is another thing these women i was interviewing with are mobile as you said they are exercising what happens when you're exercising? All your ability to control your body, you lose your control over your body. Your, your breasts start jumping up and down, right? You kind of you lay, raise your leg and then your, your um, uh, sweatpants will fall off. And women would be telling me about these things, how they would be losing control of their bodies, how they would be avoiding male gaze on their legs if they're, you know, doing this exercise and doing that exercise. So coming back to your question on uh on some mobility issue mobility and movement right both, both of these things they're quite kind of central, not in the conventional sense we have a tendency to think about this in a in a very micro level um uh, it's kind of uh it's making these, these so all these bodily movements are um enabling us. To test the boundaries of this heteronormative nature and the control over female bodies, Um, I like it's kind of it's very so when you ask about it as such, I had you your question made me think. To be honest, Uh, it's it's a great question, and and I think it was part of women's uh, women's desire because. I mean, you have read the chapter on Istanbul, obviously. This mobility, like in a, in a city like Istanbul, that's very vibrant, but it's very uh, controlling over, over anybody's, right? The kind of concrete is taking over individuals' ability to move around. So the kind of it's a way of in the in the spore itself as an object of desire. It's a way of trying to get out of the house, trying to kind of move around in the city, and and I can say it's kind of it's it must be quite central. I've never
1: addressed it as such. Uh, so thank you. Of course, um, my next question is about Istanbul, actually, <laughs> and city making. So you show us that. Desire manifests itself through multiple contestations around class, space, and gender across gyms and exercise classes in Istanbul. And I'm wondering how you see self-making in relation to city-making and the making of a desire in Istanbul. Um, so I'm making a kind of... Uh, so in, in, the, in the very
2: early parts of my book, I'm talking about Istanbul as a city of desires. So it's a kind of, it's a city of desires. It means there are so many desires that are in contestation uh, against each other too. So there are these kind of rulers who are trying to rebuild the city in particular way. And then their kind of dominant desires will be taken over by the desire, uh, taken over uh, to the desires of others. But then neoliberal dynamics are giving another type of power to these women. Right? The kind of the more they become mobile in the city, then their desires would be recognized more. So then I kind of turn the narrative a little bit upside down, um, and and speak about how the the more women follow their spormerak. By marching in the city, right there it all started with the with the women walking up and down on the, on the streets of Istanbul. and then the the rulers of the city decided to install these rubber walking tracks across the city and then it's kind of started like the, the same thing happened with the outdoor gyms it's like women's desires started shaping the the topography of the city itself. We, when we think about the, the, the city stumble, we talk about destruction quite a lot, quite rightly so. Um, but then there's also a way of uh, recognizing the ways in which desires are, are, are shaping the city, the kind of multiple and contrasting desires are, are shaping the city. Um, so uh, so in that sense, in that chapter, I'm trying to kind of shuffle things around a little bit. And by doing so, um, I'm centralizing this desiring uh, self-making
1: in the formation of a space right, and the reformation
2: of the space.
1: Let's shift gears and talk about methodology a little bit what were some of the methods you employed to capture desire and enjoyment, which you mentioned early on? Uh, Thank you for this question. I actually
2: uh, found it uh, very challenging and it was a way for me to discover Multiplicity of possibilities that we can do ethnographic fieldwork. So most of the, 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 the uh, colleagues, most of my colleagues who want to focus on similar elements that are related to emotions, maybe anything that's, that's more like more or less intangible. They have, uh, they follow affect theory, right? A kind of, and I'm one of those people who are kind of, like, Ophic theory is very interesting, but that's not what was happening here necessarily. Desire is something that is learned. That's kind of, that's something, this, this learning process is very detailed, very delicate, very kind of multiple. And most of time, us as individuals are, are kind of bombarded with, with it from various channels. But equally, it's kind of ethnographically capturable. But then one of the things I wanted to do is to, to trace, um, to, to, to capture desire by tracing uh, an object of desire. Right? And that worked quite well for me. Um, so let's kind of open this up a little bit. So I not only centralized an object of desire, which is Merak in my analysis and, and methodology. But one of the things I did is I divided basically my fieldwork period of 12 months into three. And the first month, I was conducting zero interviews. I was just working out with women and taking field notes. That was giving me a kind of a very uh, very full sense of of what's going on there. And then when I started doing interviews, I was asking women to tell me about what prompted them to the gym. You know, why why are they exercising? Were they ex- exercising before? How did it started, etc. And most of the time, they would give a couple of things as as kind of as an element they would they would first of all, they would tell you, you know, maybe they had a kind of health problem that prompted them to the gym. But they would also like the kind of the sense of health since the sense of health was something they have they have learned, right um through through various channels, they would also be giving you, you know, I have learned about this from my doctor. And that, that was confusing me at the beginning. And then I, re- I learned that my doctor is one of the TV shows that was taking place, like daytime TV shows. And then the kind of, the more I talk to the women, the more I realize that there is a very particular learning pattern that they use media quite, quite heavily to establish a sense of what's good for their bodies and for, the, for their self, right? um so, so then it kind of directed me in the third stage. What I did was I started doing interviews with what I called third parties. The third parties were all these individuals they have mentioned in the interviews. Sometimes they were their husbands. Sometimes they were their mother-in-laws. Sometimes they were their trainers. But equally sometimes there were all these like hosts to daytime TV shows. There were two health... Uh, Themed TV shows taking place, uh, and and there was this 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 big Pilates guru um, Ebru Shala, who was a former fashion model, um, and then I started doing interviews with them, and and the, this third stage was also composed of my follow up interviews with the women after my interviews with the third parties. So I'm I'm doing interviews with the with these. Uh, what i call third-party individuals you know including gym owners and then and with the data i collect from them i was revisiting women and and you know um wrapping things up basically another thing i did in the in the last stage was um there were particular themes that was kind of crystallizing uh in the interviews uh, some of these themes were shaped by whatever political discussion was dominant at that time. Religiosity was was one of them. So back then Erdogan was saying we are trying to raise a religious generation. So the kind of the term religious and religiosity was popping up in different ways. Um, so that was one of them. Um, seniority, like aging, was another. So I did a kind of, that was another another kind of, Theme That was quite kind of central and repeating. And the third one was pregnancy. So then I ended up running three focus group interviews. It was very difficult to set up because I needed to kind of, I needed women to get together and have a kind of good conversation. Sometimes these women not necessarily knew each other. And, and we would be having a kind of very intense conversations about pregnancy, about about aging, postmenopausal bodies of women, and religiosity. And then, and then like all these kind of multiple elements were helping me to kind of almost, I, I keep using the word trace, I like tracing desire and the formation of desire in multiple ways. Um so it was methodologically I tried to kind of keep it as, as rich as I can possibly think um, because of the kind of the, the challenge that I was looking at was about the, the multiplicity and multi-fluidity uh, like fluidity of, of design self-making processes. But I think I kind of, it worked, um, I enjoyed very much and, and it worked quite well for, for these purposes.
1: I agree. <laughs> I mean, it was very fascinating to read in the book Especially your methods like focus groups, which are not, you know, methods that we see very often. Um, and I love how you describe sort of the circularity in a sense of your interviews. I'm sure this discussion will be very helpful for our listeners who are designing their own projects. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, and I have- it was
2: also, I have to say, as a kind of little anecdote, it was also helpful when one of the hosts to the show saw this as a kind of opportunity that I was as a PhD candidate from Cambridge, I was there to interview with him. So all of a sudden I was sitting in the, in the audience and he took the microphone, walked towards me and presented me as a researcher from Cambridge who believes that the exercise he's showing, showing on his show is kind of recognized by Cambridge University. And I was there accordingly. So he's such a smart guy. He made this kind of swift move, uh, move right? Kind of like presenting quite differently than the actual reasons I was there uh, as a way to promote himself. But then it worked quite well for me because like a couple of days later when I was back to Istanbul, so the show was taking place in Ankara, And I was back to Istanbul in public parks now, everybody had seen me on TV, so they wanted to talk to me. <laughs> it wasn't too difficult to set up these um, these follow up interviews in a way.
1: <laughs> That's
2: amazing. <laughs> Thanks for sharing I that. I find the video on YouTube of myself when I was like, all of a
1: sudden, the microphone on my face. <laughs> I'll I'll be looking that up, talking about surprising I... moments during fieldwork. <laughs> oh, I had plenty. Of those, so... <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, I have one more question about your methodology. I love that in the book, you explicitly think through, you know, not only your data, but also how you arrived at your data. And while doing that you take on the question of proximity in fieldwork and you arrive at inherited or invested relationality as possible methodological roadmaps. Could you elaborate on these methodological orientations and how do they emerge from or guide your research process? Yeah, that's
2: a great question. Thank you very much. Um so it's actually quite it, it was something that I've been thinking about since I was maybe a, a kind of master student, right? Um, we, um, I was thinking about different ways of caring about the about the fieldwork, different ways of caring about your interlocutors and their lives. And yes, we are expected to fill all these kind of ethics forms, etc. I don't think any of them have full understanding of what it means to care about the ethnography. Care has multiple layers. It's also about what do you, how do you engage with the, with the information you have seen in the field, whether you are seeing this as a kind of career opportunity to advance your position in your scholast, scholastic circles. I told quite a bit about the kind of scholastic view from Pierre Bourdieu's article to my students, etc. Right, we kind of so this this tendency to look at the field as if it was some sort of a, a a lab for you to test what you want to do as theory, right? What you want to kind of develop as theory, um, and and your theoretical priorities would again be determined by whatever the dominant theoretical interest is at that time, and then you would end up. You know, not caring about the actual concerns of the people that you spent a year with, which is a kind of very questionable at many levels, I have to say, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the mm-hmm. researcher's personality and ability to attach themselves. Mm-hmm. And then and then you use just the, the relevant data, just the relevant information that will help you to advance your position. So then, then I thought about how can we think about this, this notion of care in a very, you know, anthropological terms. And I thought about, so sometimes being an insider helps, not always, right? Uh, some we have seen kind of those who are kind of seen as an insider, quote-unquote, uh, who are still like trying to find their way in a, in a particular manner and not connecting with the field again. And being outsider is not always a disadvantage. It's a kind of, you know, uh, when we are thinking about ethnographic fieldwork, language-wise, and language has multiple elements, there are so many challenges over there. So the kind of, I thought about these inherited and and invested relationality, because then inherited would be, you would have the kind of insider position, but you still need to invest, right? um as as this kind of uh relationality and there is an element of care embedded in there so what happens when we don't try to use this 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 ethnographic uh field work and your your field side as some sort of a lab something that kind of like just an intellectual some mere intellectual curiosity but as as a kind of centralizing care would help you to to connect better with your interlocutors and then and then uh, try to carry this concern whatever the the central concerns of your um your uh interlocutors to the to the uh analysis and 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 theory so that's what i was kind of juggling with really when i was putting that part together
1: that's amazing thank you very much for sharing that with us and you know giving us food for thought about care and how we actually um, come to our writing and our data. Um, And lastly, what is next for you? What are some new projects, issues, questions you're currently interested in, if possible at all, during the pandemic?
2: (laughs) Yeah, there is a possibility. So um, my new, there is this new research I'm leading that's funded by the EU. It's an ERC starting grant. I'm uh, basically, what I'm trying to do with it is um, I'm trying to expand the, the kind of existing scholarship almost that I have um, so far developed I I can say that um, tends to um, focus on the intangible right kind of I focus on desire I focus on um, um, so I try to do two things with my scholarship one is is I try to kind of get deeper in the, in, in, the, in the analysis of intangible aspects of human subjectivity that connects the individual at deeper and less visible ways. And then for this aim, obviously, I have worked on desire and, and aspirations and self-making. And the other interest of mine is uh, I really enjoy like ethnographically revisiting the concepts that are used in theory too much to the extent of losing their meaning. So agency is obviously one of them. I revisited agency. I revisited intimacy. Right. And, And the new one is imagination. So imagination is one of those terms that's kind of like it can mean anything. Like intimacy, intimacy can mean anything. When I was running this workshop with with Asl Zengen Zengin um, several years ago in Cambridge, our keynote speaker Henrietta Moore's Moore's talk was uh, was titled. Um, if intimacy is the answer, then what is the question? right? Kind of, Then it's exactly where we need to kind of start with the ethnography. Otherwise, it will lose its meaning and we'll be calling anything intimacy and that's kind of a lost cause. Uh, and same for agency, obviously. Um, so with this, this new project, what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to kind of connect with, with well, I'm working with a team of scholars, obviously, connect with the imaginaries of uh, members of various populist movements across the Muslim world and And I'm arguing that we kind of every moment we fail to understand these kind of these imaginaries, we have a tendency to try to kind of force these conceptual worlds, these cosmological worlds, into our very eurocentric tropes of rationality, irrationality, which helps our again eurocentric understanding of of reducing um, Muslim politics to 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 irrational, that are prone to rage, right? Kind of the kind of, we, kind of we have multiple misunderstandings. And one of the solutions I found to kind of break these kind of uh, reductionist uh, exposure is try to theorize, try to develop theories from a, a very decolonial perspective in mind. Which is engaging with the local scholars as scholars. So another mistake we have a tendency, and that's something I've been doing in the last couple of my years. After almost when I when I was completing the book, it kind of started. You might have noticed maybe in the book I was also dealing with Al Ghazali, etc. Right? One of the mistakes we have a tendency we 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 tend to do as as anthropologists is. Um, we find these local scholars and we treat them as if they are there, if they are our interlocutors, without even questioning our own relationship with our interlocutors. Mm-hmm. We kind of rarely engage with them in the same way we engage with these big white dudes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm happy to hear this <laughs> phrase in the, in the recording actually. You know, all these <laughs> and, and Citra, Citra, but these are the scholars that are making immediate sense. And if we want to break the kind of all these limitations of ontological turn we have to 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 centralize um the classical texts from the geographies and other like local scholars native scholars from the geographies that we are studying and engage with them as our colleagues as as part of our as central part of our uh, citation and 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 theoretical analysis practices Um, And that's a kind of very long topic. I can kind of speak on and on about these citation politics, native scholars, citing native scholars, right? Um, But but this is kind of uh, my next project. It's a five-year project. I'm finishing the year one right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to be working on um, several parts of the world. We have a new postdoc. Position opening uh, on South Asia. People should check it on job, Jobs <laughs> AC UK <ASH. laughs> They want to work with me on an interesting um, topic they want to develop on dreams and
1: and, and, and imagination and, and whatnot. That's fascinating. Uh, we'll be looking forward to um, the outputs of these projects. And thank you for um, the secret job ad. <laughs> in our podcast <laughs> no, it, it was advertised just today it's not secret
2: it was advertised i was promised that it will be online today so it's um 7 30 right now here i'm hoping that it's out by monday
1: <laughs> wonderful well everybody should check that out uh <laughs> and on that note thank you very much dr sehlikolo for joining us and for your insights Oh, thank you. It was such an enjoyable uh, conversation with you. Thank you for having me as well. I'm your host, Aliza This discussion of Working Out Desire, Women, Sport and Self-Making in Istanbul, published by Syracuse University Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.